find his, his blood breaks the chain or his love breaks the chains. His blood breaks the chains. It is the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins that enables us to become the persons we are meant to be so that we go to work breaking the chains of social ill in our world. I like that. Wow. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> They've left. All right. Well, uh, I have the great joy of bringing the second message in our series on uh, Galatians. And incidentally, wasn't that great that we got Rob uh, uh, from Kenya? They landed, you guys, they landed at midnight on Saturday. And then he had to preach in about eight hours. That's why when he was standing there next to Simon, and Simon's got all this life in him, and Rob's just kind of... <laughs> and then Rob says, I wish you could be here with us today to see all the excitement. <laughs> That's all he could be. He's barely walking at that time. So bless him and bless our teens that are there. Lord be with them. All right. Now, uh, where we're going today is in uh, the series on Gen uh, Galatians, excuse me. And last week, Pastor Rob did a tremendous job of opening the thing up. Do you remember what he said in this letter of Paul to the Galatians? He says this is the only one where he doesn't give a formal uh, relational greeting. He just goes right at it. And, and as you recall, he's really mad. He's really passionate because he's terribly afraid that they're getting the freedom of Christ lost by adding to it a lot of laws that have to be obeyed. The whole book ties into that. So that's where he starts. And he rants for 10 verses. And then he literally just stops. And in verse 11, where we're going to start today, he just starts telling the story of his own life. Now, now incidentally, in the New Testament, there are at least six occasions where the story of Paul's life is either described or he himself tells parts of it. Why would he stop in the midst of this urgency that the Galatians letter expresses and just say, in essence, hey, let me tell you the story about me. It's because the meaning of his story hits his point right out of the park. Now, our stories really matter. We all have a freedom story, those of us who know Jesus. It's the story of, of when we were in the dark and God brought us to light. It's an ongoing story of trusting God, of receiving ongoing forgiveness. It's a story, it's a story, it's a story. Nothing matters more than your story. Your personal story is the second most important story on earth. The first is God's story of what Jesus did and what it means. The second story is how that that's living inside you. So Paul's going to spend a lot of time with that. I really got gripped by this passage big time this week. And part of the reason is, is I think Paul was in his mid to late 20s. We don't know for sure when, when this is happening. Maybe early 30s. So he's still a younger leader. And... Um, when Marie and I were uh, in California, we, we uh, uh, 
her 25-year-old nephew died on Christmas Day. And so we felt afresh what it is to, if you will, see youth that doesn't get to mature into the adulthood that's going to make a contribution in the world. And, and we're all incredibly sad. The memorial was yesterday. I, I couldn't be there, but Marie still is. I think of my own kids in their 20s, early 30s, and, and, and I, how much I want them to know that God wants to shape their soul and, and, and that this shaping of the soul, which is what Paul's story is, it's the story of God shaping his soul, is because God not only has a magnificent gospel, he wants to create magnificent souls that contain and share that gospel. See? And, and incidentally, God will take a long time to do this in people's lives. So I think of my own kids. I think of my precious nephew that is gone. I think of in our church, um, just in the last two to three months, four of our great young leaders, 20s, early 30-somethings, had a call from God to leave us and go somewhere else. When I came here three and a half years ago, I, I, I used to walk around the office and go, there's just too much talent here. There's too much talent here. Uh, we got to share this with the world. Some of you need to leave. Uh, jokingly uh, because there is the, the pastoral and director staff God's brought together are just amazing men and women here many of them younger and now God's called four of them out last week we said if you will goodbye and sent out our precious pastor Ted also Vance our children's pastor uh, has left now and is a missionary in the far east um, and, and, and then Brian, who was just incredible managing our offices and all of our IT and, and everything. He's probably more important than Rob because uh, <laughs> of IT stuff. And, and a beautiful man, wouldn't you say, Eric? Just an incredible young leader. And, and now uh, I can't announce it publicly yet because it's just one of our women leaders is being called out to a new thing. I, I didn't want God to take me serious on this for them all to go. But this story of what God does in Paul is the story we need to hear whether we're 25 or 35 or 65 because God is out to shape a soul. Why? Because God wants his magnificent gospel to dwell within and through magnificent spirit-filled people. Okay? So with that as a way of introduction, please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Galatians, the letter. You'll find it in our Bibles on the back of the chairs on page 1151. So open up or turn on if you're using a, uh, your uh, smartphone for this. And we're going to uh, get ready to jump right in on this thing. Now, let me give you four things that I saw as this story started coming together for me, Paul's story because the, you'll see these things happening throughout what I'm going to say from this point on. How does God shape a soul? Number one, it's through our life experience. It's through our background. It's through the family we were born into, where we were born, when we were born, the temperament we've been given, and all of the circumstances of life, especially the bumps and the bruises. And that's the first way God shapes a soul. The second one is through direct communication from him to you. 
And you're going to see in Paul's life at least two or three direct communications where God literally says things to him through the inerrant, perfect Word of God and also through divine revelation where he just speaks to him thought to thought. Third, third way God shapes our souls is he uses other people. Paul would have been dead if it weren't for three guys that God brings alongside. The first is named Ananias, the second is named Barnabas, and the third is named Peter, the great pillar of the faith. He wouldn't have made it without them. And fourth, the fourth thing is, <laughs> this is the one I don't like, time. More time than you can imagine. Because as you know, God has time, okay? And so in Paul's journey, you're going to, I'm going to try to take you through what we believe to be at least 15 years after he's converted to Christ before he's the soul that is ready to become the apostle. All right? Okay, here we go. Chapter 1 of Galatians, starting verse 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Period. Now, remember I told you that Paul's story in bits and pieces is found in at least six different places in the New Testament. I'll be referring back primarily to Acts chapter 9 to fill in some of the pieces here. What I just read to you where he says, it's not from God, it's not from men, it's from God, and I didn't receive it from anybody, I got it straight from God. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul literally was stopped in his tracks <laughs> on the road from Jerusalem up into Syria, Damascus. He was a blinding light hit him, he lost his sight, he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice speaking to him from heaven, and it says, I am Jesus. He literally was arrested, stopped in his tracks by God. I'll tell you why in a minute. But when, he, when I say to you, direct communication, you may not have had anything that strong, <laughs> But I bet most of us who are followers of Jesus here will be that say there have been times in my life where I just knew God was saying this. That's direct communication. Now, that's where Paul starts. He says, listen, uh, and incidentally, why is he going to, part, part of the reason he does all this is because Paul's continuing to have to justify that he has the right to try to guide these churches. See, he's not one of the original big 12. He's not one of the pillars of the church. He comes later, and wherever he goes, they go, well, Paul's fine, but Peter. Uh, uh, Lon's messages are good, but Rob. Uh, or the other way around. Uh, <laughs> so wherever he goes, he's questioned. And so he starts by saying, I want you to know this gospel I've received, I've received directly from God. Now that either causes you to want to listen or say, the guy's screwy. Okay. But nonetheless, that's what he says. Now, note again in verse 11. He says, the gospel I preached is not of human origin. Whoa. The idea 
The great idea of the universe is the gospel of God. And the me gospel means good message. The good message of God comes from God. It's not something devised by Adam Smith, capitalism. It's not Marx, communism. It's not uh, Jefferson, Americanism. It's not Buddhism. It's not Islam. It's not Green Bay Packers-ism. Four o'clock today, let's pray. <laughs> he says, what I receive from God is from God, and it's unlike any other worldview that's ever been. He told me, I know. So, he starts his story. Okay? Verse 13 and 14. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God. And I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now let's look at one of the corresponding passages where we get a little more insight into what he's saying right there. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in themselves, which the Bible often uses the word flesh for that, to put confidence in themselves, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the law, of the people of Israel, I'm an Israelite, of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm from one of the most noteworthy tribes. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, to the moral, to the spiritual, to the religious, to the ceremonial law, I stand as a Pharisee, one of the leading scholars in the whole world concerning the Judaistic faith. As for zeal, as for passion, I persecuted the church. Now, that's what he's talking about in the first part of 13. Zeal was so highly valued. Passion, commitment to a cause, so highly valued that it was considered a great mark of, of, of a highly competent human being. And his was so great that he tried to take down Christianity almost single-handedly because he thought it was not according to the laws of God. He's proud of it. it Paul is saying to us here that, listen, his pedigree cannot be challenged. He, he, he's a graduate of Harvard, summa cum laude, whereas most of us who graduated, graduated lordy cum suny. Okay. I like that. I learned that 30 or 40 years ago. Hardly ever get to use it. Okay? So, you know, when you walk, da, 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 Lordy, come Sunni. Okay, what am I going to do now? Okay. Uh, he, he was the top of everything. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was personally trained by who many consider to be the leading rabbi in all of Israel, Gamaliel. An amazing world-class mind was given to this guy. He was raised in a Greek society as a full Hebrew. So he understood Greek civilization. He understood Latin. He was also a Roman citizen. This guy is 10 talent, highly trained, young guy who's ready to change the world. 
is what he's saying here. And he was so committed to, the, to his Judaism that he would take down, dare we say, terrorize others that didn't believe as he believed. Okay, interesting, interesting. Let's go on, verse 15. But, when a verse in the Bible begins with but, it means slow down. What you've just heard is going to be reinterpreted somehow. But, when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Verses 15 and 16, something happened to Paul. Everything was going right. He'd received a job offer from Goldman Sachs or Harvard Divinity or choose any career path that you want, top of the line, etc., uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And, and everything was stopped in its tracks when Jesus spoke to him out of that blinding light on that road to Damascus. But look, he goes further. He says, God set me apart from my mother's womb. That God knew before I was even born that this would happen, that this would occur. Before I was born, God knew me. Before I was born, God chose me. Now look at what Paul will write in a later epistle, Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5. For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Why? He wanted to. <laughs> I like people. I'm choosing them to follow me. When? When was this decision made? Before the creation of the world. Paul goes back and says, before I was born into a physical body, I was chosen by God. He will later say, all who come to God were chosen by God before foundation. What does that mean? You had personhood before you were born. You had already been identified by God. Now, I don't need to say much more as we talk about sanctity of life. Oh God. Oh God. Let the unborn be born, for they're already born to you, God. Amen. Yeah. For the creation of the world. Now, here's the next thing that comes out of that, those two verses. He says, verse 16, call me by his grace, please to reveal his son in me. And then it says, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So when God chose you, to save you, to rescue you from your sins, to give you his own spirit to dwell with you. It was number one because he loves you. He wanted to do it. He wants you to know him. He wants you to live the kind of life that you can live because you know him. But that's not the end. You were also chosen so that you tell everybody else what has happened to you. 
That's what Paul's doing here by giving his story. We're not just saved and rescued so that life gets better for us and our sins are forgiven. Every person who's saved by Jesus Christ has been given, number one, a relationship with God, and number two, a calling to let others know about it. And that's why part of the reason that God had uh, Marie and I come to this church. Our lives are totally devoted, helping other people find him. So is yours. Just the way God made you. Your personality, your background, everything else, you have been made a container to declare him through your life and through your words. That's what Paul's saying. I was saved, and I was saved to do something. Tell others. I like that. Okay, now watch what happens here. At the end of verse 16, he says, look at there, it says, uh, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. And later, I returned to Damascus. This is really interesting, and it's really mysterious. So Paul has this thing happen on the road to Damascus. He's blinded. He goes into Damascus. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. You can read this all in Acts chapter 9 later. And, and then God calls a guy by the name of Ananias to go to Paul and tell him what God is up to in his life and prophesy to him and then pray over him. His sight is returned and, and then he's, he's, he's overwhelmed because he had seen on the road to Damascus Jesus. He had heard his voice and he had been the one saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Now he knows he is and so it appears that for just a few days after he was healed, he's, he's trying to tell everybody. And as Acts 9 points out, and they didn't like it. Why? Number one, he had come to town to get them killed. Now he supposedly believes it all. You going to believe that person like that? Well, he thought they would. He would. Remember how zealous he is? Oh, 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 oh. You know, got to get this. You, you, you wanted to kill us. What are you after now? We don't trust you. And so he's just there a few days. And then he takes off and he goes to Arabia. Kind of romantic, don't you think? Arabia. What do you think of? Lawrence of Arabia. Camel. I, I envision him carrying lots of scrolls of the Old Testament. Why? Because God had to reteach him everything. There's a verse from Luke 24 I want to show right now. And this is what Jesus said to two disciples after he was raised from the dead and they didn't know it was Jesus. He said, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to those two men what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, Paul knew what we call the Old Testament. He knew all of the ancillary material that went along with it, the whole Judaism system and it was all wrong until God helped him to put Jesus at the center because all of the Old Testament points to him I think he was in Arabia by himself 
or, or in a village where he wasn't known. And I think he gave himself to what appears to be two to three years of solitude and study so he could see that Jesus was the center of all of the Old Testament. Then it says, and then he, what? He comes back to Damascus. Now again, Luke chapter 9 tells us that when he comes, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 9 tells us that when he comes back to Damascus after the time in Arabia, here, we'll have him on the camel coming back now. Okay. So he went, he's come back. But boy, he was, he knew Jesus was the Son of God when he left. Now he knows he's the Messiah. Now this incredible mind that had been given to this man, this all this pedigree, now all of that can be used and he will be able to fire up minds, challenge ideas like no fisherman from Galilee would ever be able to. Or so he believes. So he comes back to Damascus. And actually, I want to read this little section to you. It's in uh, Acts chapter 9. And uh, it's, it starts in verse 22. So Saul grew, his name Saul Paul, same thing, more and more powerful. He baffled the Jews now living in Damascus. He proved that Jesus was the Messiah after many days had gone by, they all believed him and became followers. No. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. He learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. So, they wanted, they didn't believe him the first time. He goes away, he learns all this stuff. He's got it right now. He comes back. Now he declares all this truth and he quite is certain, I'm sure, that they're all going to follow him. Now they want to kill him. He's challenging Judaism. But his followers took him by night in the city of Damascus and they lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall lowered in a basket, fetal position like a baby, dropped him to the ground so that he could flee by night for his life. So much for Paul being the big shot who will change the world. Well, you say, well, what happens next? Well, here's what happens next. I'm actually staying with Acts chapter 9 because in our passage it says then I went to after three years I went to Jerusalem okay well here's what happens dropped in a basket opening in the wall then he came to Jerusalem he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was really a disciple and here comes man number two but Barnabas, remember Ananias had been first, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And Barnabas told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed there and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, he goes to Jerusalem. That's in our verse. 
what is it, 18, three years I went up to Jerusalem, and it says, and I got acquainted with Peter, Cephas, and stayed with them about 15 days. So this trip to Jerusalem is only 15 days. Okay, so at least three years has gone on since he was blinded by the road, gone to Arabia, come back, nearly been killed, dropped from the wall in a basket, gone to, to now Barnabas, because Barnabas has cred. Top-notch guy, older guy, trusted. Peter will meet with Paul only because of Barnabas. Mentors open doors for others. And, and it says that he and Peter, look what it says there. He says, I, I, uh, I stayed with him, Peter, 15 days. 15 days with Peter. Oh, man. Talk about Lon coveting something. And even the Greek in there, what says get acquainted, it means this wasn't formal dialogue and debate. It means they hung out together with their feet up on the table and the fire brewing drinking coffee. I love it. And then when he wasn't with Peter, he went out trying to tell Jews about Jesus that he was finding. You know, you'd think he'd learn because he doesn't do it well yet. All right? Not believed the first time, nearly killed the second time, and now we know that in these 15 days, he got himself in trouble again. Acts chapter 9. He talked, he debated with Hellenistic Jews, and guess what? They tried to kill him again. When the believers learned this, a.k.a. Peter, Barnabas, James, and the other followers, they took him from Jerusalem over to the coast put him in a boat, and sent him to Tarsus. They sent him home. Tarsus is where he's from. He got kicked out of class. He got sent home. And he goes to Tarsus. Now, you say, well, did Peter not like him? I think Peter loved him. But he was doing more harm than good in Jerusalem. Not because he didn't know the truth, but he must have not loved people yet. He debated. It, all the words say debated, proved, all that stuff. It never says that love people so much that you'll cry that they might know Jesus. So they sent him home. Incidentally, this is kind of fun. It, it says, and they took him to Caesarea, to the coast, put him in a boat, sent him off to Tarsus. Listen to verse 31 of Acts 9. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. <laughs> this whole three, four years that has gone on where he thought everything about him was made to do this and that he would be able, be able to do it perhaps better than anyone else and everywhere he's gone has been an abysmal failure. That's verse 21 for us in our passage. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. That's where Tarsus is. What he doesn't, doesn't say there is they made him go. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are there, that are in Christ. They'd only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They praise God because of me. Chapter 2. Then... Look at just the first line, because I'm going to camp on that for one minute. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. 14 years now. Now, some 
commentators believe that the 14 years is the whole thing from his conversion to when he's gone out and done his first missionary tour and, and he's come back to report to the apostles. Some say it was 14 years between when they sent him to Tarsus before he could come back to Jerusalem. Either way, we're dealing in somewhere in the ballpark of 14 to 17 or 18 years of God developing this soul. What happened in Tarsus? No one knows. Not a word about it. He probably went back to tent making. And my hunch is, God, who had reinterpreted the scriptures for him, now is having to reshape his soul and his character so that he becomes a magnificent soul that loves the world to share with the world. Somewhere in those 10 plus years in Tarsus, a guy named Barnabas shows up again. He'd never forgotten Paul. He knew Paul wasn't ready, but he never forgot him. And now there was an outbreak of Christianity in Gentile lands that Peter and Barnabas and James didn't know what to deal with. And Barnabas remembered, what about Paul? He goes to Tarsus. He finds him. He shepherds him and brings him to Syria. And then that magnificent mind, which is now fueled with holy love and undying gratitude for what Jesus had done for him, is ready. And Barnabas and Paul will change the world. After 14 years, after the first missionary journey, they come back to Jerusalem. Verse 2, I went in response to a revelation, a meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I met with the pillars of the faith, he will see. And, and, and I, I told them what I preached among the Gentiles. Verse 2, I wanted to be sure I was running and not, had not been running my race in vain. The early Paul would have never wondered if he was right. This Paul does. Not even, and then, and then it goes on. Verse 4, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus has to be maintained or we'll become slaves to the law. And on it goes. I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about it next week. But I want to move to closure here. Um, years later, when he's writing to the Corinthians and again trying to establish his authority, he, he says something which kind of defines these whole 14 to 17 years. Let's look at it on the screen. This is years later. If I have to boast, I'll only boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus who is to be prayed forever praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Eretus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and I slipped through his hands. No more pedigree, Pharisee, trained by Gamaliel, no more knowing more than anyone else. Now he defines himself by one thing. Fetal position in a basket dropped to the ground. He had learned that all of his learning 
meant nothing. He had learned that all of his zeal meant nothing unless he was totally, totally dependent on God for every breath, every thought, and every dream. It was a humility gap. That's why I title this sermon, When Basket Cases Become Blessings. God often saved through baskets, you know. Moses was saved out of a basket. So is Paul. Basket case. We all are apart from God. The whole world is apart from God. And our calling now is to uh, let him shape us and mold us into the magnificent souls we are meant to be so that we can help fellow basket cases get made new and whole. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Lord, we commit this time to you now, and as we worship in song, be pleased to drive these truths home to our hearts. Amen and amen. Amen, church. Would you stand?